Thank you, Matt. Good morning. <clears throat> it's August. Can you believe it? August 7th, summer coming to a close. What was that? What? Hush? Oh, hush. I'm sorry. I said the thing that shouldn't have been spoken. Joy said to me the other day, she goes, I'm ready to be done. I'm ready to be done with this, with just having the kids around ready for school to start. Any, any other parents feel the same way? You're ready for this? I know your kids are sitting right next to you, so it might be a little embarrassing to say that. You're like sheepishly. I see that hand. Uh, kids, welcome to this up there, big service. I know occasionally we get to do this, but uh, um, this is what we do. And we talk about you a lot up here. Um, but we're glad to have you. Now, I'm going to give a message, kids, about the Bible and about Jesus, and it's going to be important. Sometimes it's going to be a little boring, and that's okay, right? Uh, and sometimes I'll try to address you and pull you into it a little bit, okay? So I'll call your name out. But let's, you know, just try to listen as best you can. I remember when I first, when I, when I first kind of understood what the person was saying up front, and it kind of started to click. But it, does, it didn't happen right away. It took a little bit of time. So, but it will happen. Just keep, keep trying, okay? Keep trying. That was funnier in my head, but uh, that's what I... So my name is Peter Herzog. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Chapel Hill Church. And our lead pastor, Pastor Paul, is traveling with his family to Michigan. And he's from Canada, so I always like to say he tries to get as close as he can to the motherland. I saw a picture of him on Facebook this week that he was like right on the border. So really do pray he comes back. Um, uh, but do pray, uh, honestly, seriously, about that they would get a tremendous rest and refreshment. Um, as you can imagine, as a lead pastor, when every, every time we go through this cycle and the fall's coming up, there's a tremendous amount of pressure and, and thinking and preparation for the fall. And we have an exciting fall that's coming up. Just pray that he, they, they get some great time together. They have, they have this, this one more week, and then he'll be back in, um, in front of us next Sunday. But pray they get fully refreshed and they get what they need from this uh, this vacation. Let me, let me pray first before we dive into this and uh, um, ask for God's hand to be on this. God, we just, we praise you, Lord. We thank you for uh, your love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is found within it. And we ask God that you would just uh, speak through these words. Um, Lord, may your truth come. And, and where, where I'm in error, where I'm off base, Lord, I pray that those things would not land. But rather where it's true, where it's right, where it's holy, where it's of you, that that would land. And that would, uh, would shape and mold this morning and shape and mold what you'd want to do today. Um, God, I love you. I praise you. Thank you for this church. And I ask God that you just would uh, lead us and guide us in these next few moments. Amen. All right. Honor everyone. So if you're new here, we're in this series called Honor Everyone, and it's based on the book of First Peter in the Bible. And we're in First Peter chapter 3. We're just going verse by verse right through First Peter. And verse, uh, chapter 3 is this continuation of a theme. And this theme is making ourselves subject. Peter says, be subject. He says it in chapter 2, be subject to the government, to every human institution, he says, be subject to your supervisors, your, your, your boss. And now in chapter 3, Peter's talking about how we're to be subject to each other 
in marriage. And I was thinking about this, uh, this is a little off script for me, but I was thinking about the, uh, this passage just a few minutes ago and how Peter's writing to these Christians who are spread out all throughout the region. And they are, this Christianity is new. Jesus had just come. He just had died on the cross, just rose again. And now they're all spread out throughout the region. Peter's writing a letter to all of them. And imagine all the new things they're, they're experiencing. Imagine some of the challenges they're experiencing, some of the, some of the pressures that they're experiencing. And he's writing to them, encouraging them, uh, and, and, and trying to get them to live out the calling that God has for them. He calls them in chapter one to look up and keep their eyes on Christ, to remember their great salvation. He's trying to just keep them going as a great coach would to remind them. And I, I was trying to imagine this. Imagine if you, if, if you'll notice in, in the section here, it talks about, uh, about a, um, a, a couple where only one is a believer and the other one isn't. Well, imagine how often that occurred. How often in this new environment, this, this new time where there was the, the way or, the, or Christianity, that there were people in marriages going, what do I do? What do I do in this situation? Um, but in, in this, there's this theme of, of being subject. And he, Peter keeps talking about, be subject. Be subject to these authorities. Be subject to the human institutions, your masters. And he also talks about um, being subject in marriage. And you'll find this all throughout the gospel. Often Jesus is called, uh, we're, we're called to be subject to various authorities and to other people. And this being subject is not just for subjection's sake. Like, we're just supposed to follow the rank. No, there's a heart behind it. There's a missional purpose behind it. Peter's very clear. He says, be subject to every human institution so that, here's the why, so that you'll silence critics and they will see your good deeds and glorify God. There is a why, a mission behind this. It's not just subjection for subjection's sake. Be subject to your supervisor because this is the model of Christ. And when when he this was he when he suggested himself to the suggest subjected himself, the result was the healing of the world. He says that in the end of uh, chapter two that when Christ subjected himself and 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 suffered unjustly on the cross, that the result was the healing. Of the world, and we are to be like Christ and do that. So there's a why, there's a mission behind the subjection. We want, we want the people of the world, we want everyone around us to see Christ in us. We want to subject ourselves so that Christ can be clearly seen. So, chapter three, Peter says this Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even as some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Be subject so that they may be one. Mission. Peter, uh, Paul speaks of this very same thing in 1 Corinthians. He says this, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. There's a deep why behind this. And there's also, as Peter and Paul are talking about this, this must have been a very common topic in the church that was discussed. And it's showing up in their writings. Now Paul here, and Peter as well, doesn't specifically deal with how we navigate the everyday difficulties of being in a marriage where someone believes and the other one doesn't. And he doesn't encourage what I like to call 
missionary dating. Maybe you've heard this term. Dating, like, well, they're, you know, they're not a Christian, but you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, double down and then eventually I'm going to pray that they become a Christian. I always discourage that because a lot of times what I see is missionary dating happens and it goes the other direction. That a lot of times the individual walks away from their faith in the process or marginalizes it. He doesn't talk about how we navigate everyday difficulties. He doesn't, he doesn't encourage missionary dating, but he does. He does speak to the mission in this. He speaks to the mission behind this, the heart behind it. I should point out in this verse, it says that the unbelieving husband is made holy. It doesn't say that he enjoys salvation because of his wife, but rather because he's close to his wife in this relationship, and he's close to his wife's Christ-centered living, it creates this opportunity for him to be influenced in a godly way. And every time his wife follows Christ and, ex- and shows godliness to her husband, that's a moment when he's not being influenced by godlessness or desires that want to take his soul. In this way, he's made holy because he's set apart from the world and more likely to receive the gospel. But we can flip this around, too. I think it's, it, it, it doesn't say that here, but it, 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 we can flip this around. That husbands as well... Husbands, be subject to your wives. Submit yourselves to one another so that you can also show your wife what God is doing in your soul. So that you can win her over by seeing what is going on when, with inside of you. Now, Peter and Paul don't say it this way. They, they, they call out uh, the wife. But I don't think it's inappropriate to, to make that flip. I want to pull us both into this. I don't want this to just simply be about wives do this, husbands do that. It can address both. Because the Christian life is marked by dissent, not ascent. If you missed last Sunday, Pastor Paul talked about humility. And he unpacks the characteristics of humility. And it's central behind this heart of being subject Be subject, live a life of descent, live a humble life, race to the last. Why? Because then the world can see your good deeds and glorify God. Because Christ did it this way and it resulted in the healing of the world. Because when you do this, your spouse will see what God is doing in your soul and they may be one. There's a mission behind it. And it involves all of us. Now, I want to pause for a moment, and I want you to think about the difficulty that emerges in a marriage where a spouse has a completely different worldview. This is increasingly common. In the 60s, they say it was about 20% of marriages. Now we're seeing about 40% of marriages are called interfaith. And it's it's more acceptable today. Before it wasn't. Uh, Now 80% of adults between 18 and 23 say, yeah, no problem, whatever, interfaith marriage is great. But in many cases, when you talk to spouses in the church, in these marriages, you do find there's tremendous difficulty. Oftentimes, these marriages will exhibit one of these three things. One, in order to be more in sync with your spouse, the Christian will have to push Christ to the margins of his or her life. This may not involve walking away from their faith, but in matters of devotional life, hospitality to believers, small group meetings, emergency hosting of people in need, doing things like that, missionary support, tithing, raising children in the faith, fellowship with other believers. 
these things often will have to be minimalized or avoided in order to preserve peace in the home. Maybe you've seen this. Maybe you're experiencing this. Number two, alternatively, if the believer in the marriage holds on to a robust Christian life and practice, the non-believing partner, spouse, will have to be marginalized. If he or she can't understand the point of Bible study or prayer or mission trips or hospitality, then he or she can't or won't participate alongside the, believe, alongside the believing spouse in those activities. And the deep unity and oneness of a marriage cannot flourish when one partner cannot fully participate in the other person's most important commitments. And the last thing is, so either the marriage experiences stress and breaks up, or it experiences stress and stays together, achieving some kind of truce that involves one spouse or the other capitulating in some areas, which leaves both parties feeling lonely and unhappy. It can be tough. It can be very tough for both spouses, tough for the Christian spouse and tough for the spouse who doesn't follow Christ. And if you know someone in this position, it's super important that we continue to pray for them and encourage them. And for those of you who are followers of Christ and may be considering marrying someone who doesn't share your faith, let me encourage you to have an honest conversation with someone who's currently in a marriage like this and get a sense of what it's like. Peter's messages to, message to, this, to Christians in these marriages are to subject yourself to your spouse so that they may be one by your respectful and pure conduct. And I have such tremendous respect for those who live this out every single day, are in these situations, and they are faithfully living this out. Maybe makes, they make some mistakes, maybe, but, but, their, but their trajectory is this, that they want and they pray and they ask that God would save their spouse. And we pray alongside them. And we encourage them. And if you are that spouse, if you're the one that doesn't follow Christ, know that your spouse wants this for you. And we know it's challenging and we want to support you as a church. But it's not... It's not about just being respectful. This isn't just about behavior. It's not just about being pure. It's not just about conduct. What what Peter wants us to see, or what Peter wants the government to see, or our bosses to see, our supervisors, or our spouses to see, is he wants us to see a transformed heart. He knows that if, if the world could see what God is truly doing inside of you, the mission could be met. He, he knows that if, if the work of Christ that's being done in you, this amazing work, if that could be shown, it could have an impact, a tremendous impact on the people around you, including spouses. Look at what Peter says. He tells women in 1 Peter 3.3. 3. He says this. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Here's what Peter's saying. The self is the new selfie. 
I liked it. It might be too cheesy. The self is the new selfie. It's not about the external. The real power and the real life is found in the internal. Peter's saying that let what, let what makes you attractive and beautiful be the internal. The hidden person of the heart. Why? Because the inner life is where God does some of his best work. And for many, it may be the first evidence that they see of the existence of God. An unbelieving spouse may first see the evidence of God when they see the changed heart of their spouse. Look, we love testimonies. We love hearing what change has occurred in people's lives. We are moved by those in our lives who are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And as it says in Galatians, against these things, there is no law. Kids, listen up. When you trust Jesus, God takes your heart and he shapes it and molds it and he puts in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. Sometimes it happens right away. Sometimes it takes years or decades to build that in you. But you are on a journey when you start to follow Christ and he's shaping you to be more like him. He's putting his love into you, his joy into you, his peace into you. You are being shaped in that way. It is an amazing thing as being a Christian is seeing that happen in our lives. The fruits of the Spirit. And this impacts people so much when they see these things emerge out of our lives. Why are you spending so much time doing this? How can you love people so much? How can you have such grounded joy in the midst of tragedy? How can you have such grounded peace in the midst of pain? You know this. You hear these stories. And you're moved. Deeply, deeply moved. We, maybe you saw on the news this, about this, this family that died in the car accident. And I'm just amazed at the, 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 the testimony of the parents. And you're just seeing the work of the Spirit flowing out of them as they talk about how they forgave this driver that took, this truck driver that ran over this family and took their lives in an instant. And they forgave him. And, and, and right away, right there on the public stage, everyone's seeing the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And it moves us, and it shapes us, and for many, it's the first evidence of God they may see. And so, Chapel Hill, we all need to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in increasing ways. We need you to step out and see how God is bring, making you more loving, more full of joy, more full of peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. The world, the watching world, needs to see Christians ex uh, exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. More and more and more and more. In order to do this well... We need to cultivate our interior life. If you were to take a selfie of your inner self, 
Not literally, it's disgusting. But if you were to take a selfie of your inner self, what would, you, what would we see? Would we see the emergence of the fruit of the Spirit? Would we see transformation, sanctification, all these things of God molding and shaping your life, your person, to being more and more like Christ, full of God's love, full of God's joy? Kids, are you seeing yourself become more and more like Jesus? Are you seeing yourself become more loving, more full of joy? And in many ways, in order to have fruit, I'm going farming now. This is, I'm off the reservation. This is not my, this is where Paul does his, I should have him come talk about this. But, but in order to have fruit, you need to cultivate it. That's an agricultural term. I don't know what it means, but it's very important. You need to cultivate in order to have fruit. So we need to cultivate this in our lives. So I have a question, Chapel Hill. Are you spiritually healthy? Because without a healthy and ordered interior life exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, all this talk about being subject and honoring everyone and conducting yourself in a certain way is only going to have limited power. The amount of power that your carnal being, your flesh has, your person has, that's it. You don't have as much power as you could have if you were to cultivate your inner life. So what I want to do is I want to take the remainder of this talk... And I want to talk to those who might be feeling like they're not seeing the power of the fruit of the Spirit like they should in their lives. And I'm not going to be able to give you everything. I, I, this, is, this could go on for, for many weeks. I do want to focus on one thing. And this is really the heart of my sermon about cultivating the interior life. Because I get concerned that the church, we often push Christians to certain behavior. Subject yourself. Honor everyone. All these great things. But then we don't talk about the fuel behind it. We don't talk about the grace required to actually execute on it in a sustained way. And it's available to us. And I'm seeing evidence, and maybe you will too as I kind of explain this. I'm see, and I see it in my own life. This, this, I start there. I see evidence of what Peter Scazzaro uh, 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 calls the shadow. There's a book called Emotionally Health, The Emotionally Healthy Leader. He's a pastor. He wrote this book. It's a great book. It's very challenging. I hated it. I wanted to throw it out the window. But it's one, that's, that's how I know it's good. He calls it the shadow. And we will not experience the full power of the fruit of the Spirit if we don't face our shadow, is his claim. And I believe him. Now, before I describe what the shadow is, let me what he brings up as a shadow, let me ask you some questions that will reveal if you have a shadow, this shadow he's talking about. Now, you, you may not say yes to all these. And you may go, well, what's wrong with that? With some of these things. And they're all bad things. But if you say yes to a few, there might be evidence of a shadow in your life. So let's do a little self-assessment. Okay? Here we go. Are you always on social media? Don't say out loud. This is internal. And don't point to somebody else either. Out of bounds. Do you check business and market stats and stuff, sites, all the time? Do you have trouble sleeping? Are you living in panic mode? Do you see this around us? Do you see it in your own life? Do you have a short fuse? Are you in a hurry all the time? 
to the next slide. Are you constantly feeling pressure to work harder and harder and take on more and more? Do you quickly write people off? Are you overwhelmed with what people think about you or if they approve of you? Are you always looking for the next thing? Are you finding yourself taking out your emotions on the most important people in your life? If you said yes to one one or more of those, you may have a shadow that's following you around that you need to address. What's a shadow? Let's have Peter Scazzaro give his definition. He says, your shadow is the accumulation of untamed emotions, less than pure motives and thoughts, that while largely unconscious, strongly influence and shape your behaviors, it is the damaged but most hidden version, but mostly hidden version of who you are. That's kind of a weird thing to consider, so take, some, take a moment and look at his definition. Because the shadow, it might show up in many various forms. Sometimes it reveals itself in sinful behaviors. Like as judgmental perfectionism, outbursts of anger, jealousy, resentment, lust, greed, bitterness. Or it might reveal itself more subtly through a need to rescue other people, be liked by other people, a need to be noticed, an inability to stop working, a tendency towards isolation, or being really rigid. Now, certain aspects of the shadow might be sinful. But Peter points out that they may just be weaknesses or or wounds. They tend to appear in the ways we try to protect ourselves from feeling vulnerable or exposed. And this means that the shadow is not simply another word for sin. And then because of that, the shadow is, it's very difficult to pin down. Uh, There was one psychologist that wrote, the shadow by nature is difficult to grasp. It is dangerous disorderly and forever in hiding as if the light of consciousness would steal its very, very life. It's very difficult to grasp. So let me, let me tell you a story that might help. I've always heard of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. I've heard that reference, but I never really kind of contemplated the story. Let me just tell you the story briefly. During the day, Dr. Jekyll lives a polished, well-respected life with many friends But at night, he roams the streets as the violent Mr. Hyde. And when he intentionally enjoys the ability to indulge in his shadowy Mr. Hyde side, over time, Dr. Jekyll loses his ability to control going back and forth between his two identities. Did you get that? He's one guy during the day, and at night, he's a whole different guy. Increasingly, he becomes the Mr. Hyde, the dark side, at the most inopportune times. So he was able to separate these identities, but now he's losing his ability to separate those identities. And the story ends when Jekyll finally realizes he will soon become the evil Mr. Hyde forever, and he actually tragically ends his own life. Now, the author behind this book casts the shadow side of Dr. Jekyll as just pure evil. But that's not how we're describing the shadow in this case. But I do relate to this, and and you may as well. I relate to trying to avoid at all costs 
facing up to the reality of my shadow. And maybe you know that as well. But here's the thing. If you ignore your shadow, it'll undermine everything 1 Peter 2 and 3 is talking about. It'll undermine the work of the Spirit in your life. You will miss out on seeing the power of God in your life, and there's great risk that it'll take over your life. And your shadow will limit your ability to actually serve others in a pure way. You won't care about subjecting yourself to the government or to your, your supervisor or winning over your spouse if your shadow has its way. Actually, you might care, but you won't have any energy to do it. And also, your shadow will blind you to the shadow of others. Take a look at this quote. When we refuse to confront our own shadow, we will either be blind to it or fail to take into account the shadows of other people. This blindness causes us to idealize certain people as if they don't have a shadow like the rest of us. And we often feel worse about ourselves as a result, falling into a quicksand of morbid introspection in which we sink even deeper and deeper under the weight of our own shadow. Next slide. Or at times we might judge others because of their imperfections, cruelly, cruelly gossiping about them out of our own jealousy and insecurity. And we forget that they too have a shadow that leaves them feeling as inadequate and vulnerable as we do. Jesus was deeply aware of the shadow in those who, who followed him. Think about the story of Jesus in the temple throwing, you know, throwing out the money changers. Scripture tells us in John that Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all People And Jesus knew that belief alone was not a cure for the shadow. We, have, we don't have to look any further than the, the author of the book we're studying. He, was, he boldly declared Jesus is the Messiah. He believed in Jesus. But then when the moment came, he denied Christ three times. I think Peter today would tell us not to ignore our shadow. And if we want the hidden person of the heart that 1 Peter 3 talks about to be truly healthy and holy and to be our adorning that Peter, that Peter talks about, we need to cultivate our interior life. And that starts, I want to say, by facing our shadow. Peter Scazzaro goes on to show that there are gifts when you face your shadow. I want to encourage you to face your shadow. There are gifts. There are, there are benefits to doing this. When you face your shadow, you break the shadow's hidden power. When you acknowledge, yes, I have a shadow. Yes, I want to look at this. Yes, I want to unpack this. You break the power of that shadow. Look at what Paul says when he talks about the thorn in the flesh. He says in 2 Corinthians, he says, Three times I pleaded to the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. For when I'm weak, I am strong. Notice in that passage, he acknowledges the shadow. He acknowledges the pain. And what happens is it turns from this thing of shame, this thing where I don't want to address it, to something of power. It, it goes from this hidden thing that's, that's pulling me down to something where now I understand God's grace. Now I understand the power that God has for me. It moves me into this new place and there, it becomes actually a gift in a way. It reveals God's power, the power made perfect in our weaknesses. 
You also discover that the shadow has hidden treasures in it. Um, Through the prophet Isaiah, God said, I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in the secret places. And this promise is true when when we start to enter in the dark places of the shadow and allow those places to become tools in our service to God. Chapel Hill, I've seen this over and over again. When you face your shadow, when you start to look at these parts of your life which you really don't want to look at, you know it's there, you feel it every single day, but you don't want to look at it. When I've seen in my own life, when I've done it, or when I've seen friends of mine do it, it's amazing what happens because there's a healing process that, that occurs, and then the result is this hidden treasure of being able to look up. Being able to see God. I've seen it several, I've several stories of this where people suddenly, they, it's, it's interesting, you just see a cloud over them. It's like this, it's just like you can't wake up, man. You just can't shake them. And then when they decide to look at it, when they decide to go, yes, I acknowledge this in my life, whether it's sin, whether it's a weakness, whether it's a wound, whatever makes up this shadow thing we're talking about, they look up. And that looking up is a gift. It's a treasure. You see so much more. You see who God is. And it's a joy. And I'm telling you this because I want to encourage you to do it. But I know in my own life, it's funny. I have seasons where it's like I'm, where I want to hide it. And then there's seasons where I'm strong enough to to acknowledge it. And there's other seasons where I'm just, it's like kind of building up and I just don't want to deal with it. I kind of vacillate between like this thing where it's like, well, okay, I'll work on it. And I see the benefits. I see the gifts and I'm done. I got it. I'm I'm healed. And then there's, and then over time it kind of builds up again. There's things and I I gotta, I gotta do it. I gotta address it. I gotta confess it. I gotta repent. I gotta move on from it. I want to encourage you to do it. There are hidden treasures and there's hidden power in doing it. So how do you face your shadow? Just four things. Give this. These are, these are very tactical steps. The first one is this. And everyone's going to roll their eyes at this one. But face your emotions. Because here's the thing. The shadow hides behind but speaks through your emotions. You feel it every single day. People who are under the thumb of the shadow experience intense emotions, but here's the thing. They haven't reflected on what's going on inside of them. And in order to face the shadow, we have to be willing to acknowledge that this is going on inside of me and then reflect on it and go, why? And if this causes you to roll your eyes, well, you might be the person that needs to deal with this. (laughs) I hate to say that, but I, I, I just say it. But here's the thing, Chapel Hill, I want to say it again. Some of the most transformational and healing moments in my life occurred when I was willing to look at it and willing to talk about it and willing to confess this is going on inside of me. And so ask yourself, what are you feeling? What are you feeling about that feeling? What are you sad about? What are you glad about? What are you angry about? What are you anxious about? Because this is the language of the shadow. Where are you feeling the stress and the tension? What is this telling me? And then when you have a good sense of what's, what's going on inside of you, then you start to ask the question, why? 
Why do I get angry when I come home? Why can't I ha- that, handle that certain conversation with my spouse or with my coworkers? And start to do the work of unpacking. Cultivating that inner self. Second thing, understand your past. This is an interesting one you may not have considered. But we are a product of our family. The Bible talks about how sinful patterns are passed down through generations. And you may have heard this quote. I just recently heard it this week. Jesus may be in your hearts, but grandpa's in your bones. I love it. I'm going to use that one forever. You need to understand your family and what they're struggling with. It's to your advantage. Grandpa's in your bones. Great-grandpa's in your bones. You might be battling with something that's generations old. Why can't I get over this? Well, this might be a generational thing you're dealing with. I don't have time, we're out of time, I don't have time to go into it, but one tool that can be really helpful is this thing called a genogram. I would put a website up. It's from the same guy that I got this book from, emotionallyhealthy.org slash genogram. Check it out, and what you do is you map your family. And, you, and, and the way it's built is it just helps you identify some of the sinful patterns that may occur throughout generations of your family. Check it out. There's a video that talks about it, it's great. It's like, it's like, it's like 30 minutes to watch the video, and then there's a thing, so... Um, number three, oh, this is so, this is so like therapy counseling type things, but I see it every day. Identify the negative scripts in your head. A negative script is this internalized message from the past that shapes our conscious and unconscious behaviors in the present. Do you get that? Internalized message from the past that shapes your conscious and unconscious behaviors now. And the shadow thrives off of these messages. And when we don't stop to reflect and identify them, they can cause so much damage to ourselves, to our family, and they drain us of God's power in our lives. And oftentimes, it's messages that somebody significant in your life told you. Maybe your parents. Things like, your worth and your value are based on your performance and your achievements. Has anyone heard this message? Or, conflict is dangerous and bad. Always avoid it. Or get it right all the time and don't ever, ever make mistakes. Or don't ever trust anyone. Do you have negative negative scripts like that in your head? They're powerful. Chapel Hill, face them. Brothers and sisters, face them. Write them down. Reflect on them. Be thorough with this. Hold them up to God and, and then replace them with what God says about you and what he says. This is powerful transformational stuff that can occur when you make that step. Last thing, seek feedback from trusted sources. We need trusted and sometimes professional trained people outside sources to help us identify our shadow. Pastors, therapists, spiritual directors, trusted colleagues, mentors, to hear what's going on inside our lives. And it can be especially effective to talk to somebody who's outside of what's going on. That's very important because then you get a third, someone who doesn't have conflict of interest. Talk to, you can talk to close friend, friends and family that you trust, that you know will give you good advice, and ask them, what tendencies do I have? Is there anything? Help me unpack this. It's a brave and courageous thing to do, but, but there can be tremendous fruit in this. And I just, this, this came to mind as, as I looked at 1 Peter chapter 3, and it talked about, let your adorning be this, that what God is doing in your heart. When I, when I saw that, I'm like, okay, but... But are we ready for that? Are we ready to show our hearts? Because a lot of us, our hearts are broken and wounded and hurting and 
not so, doesn't feel so beautiful. And that's why I was drawn to this, discover, this discussion about the shadow and how we need to, we need to evaluate this and, and cultivate the interior life. And then my prayer is through that, as we do that work, to that degree, we will see more and more of God's power in us. So I want to close. We'll have the, the ushers come, uh, the, um, the elders come forward. The, the team can come up on the stage again. We are on the first Sunday of the month, and we do take communion here at Chapel Hill. It's our custom. Every month we take one Sunday, and we come to the table, and we break bread, and we drink from this cup in remembrance of Christ. And it's a time where we reflect on the cross and, and Christ's body that was given for us and the blood that was shed. And I want to make one more point as we're preparing for this. As we reflect on the bread and the cup, Chapel Hill, remember that as you decide to look at the shadow, that Christ is with you. And he wants to help you face your shadow. He wants you to experience more of the fruit of the Spirit, more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, all the fruits. He wants to heal and restore the hidden person of the heart. He wants to help you cultivate the interior life. And every time you make a choice to face your shadow rather than ignore your shadow, you follow Christ to the cross. And it's often an experience of feeling naked or vulnerable or pain or lonely or fear or darkness. And those things will often whisper whisper things like lies to you saying, if you do this, you're only going to be embarrassed. It's only going to lead to despair. It's only going to lead to death. You'll feel these things. But Christ is with you in this. You're not alone in it. And there are seasons where God uses these experiences to strip us, expose us, so that we can be healed. And so that he can bring out the fruit of the Spirit in us. You know people who do this. You know people who have done this work. And you see the fruit of it. And you benefit from it. And the most important task during these times is to wait on the love of the Father as Jesus did while he hung on the cross. Wait, remain, endure, abide like Jesus did. And as you wait, you anchor yourselves in the truth that God's love and grace are true and that the resurrection is a certainty. And based on my own experience, I can promise you that you will be reborn into a new place of maturity in Christ to the degree that you do this. You'll become more compassionate, more vulnerable, more broken, more loving. And even each time you pass through a season of facing your shadow, you shadow, you'll be transformed even more into the image of Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray. Let me just speak over you the truth that you are you are a child of God. You are his son, his daughter, and he made you, and he knows you, and he knows it all, and he is gentle, and he is good, and he is holy, and he wants to free you, and he wants to show you things that are full of life. He wants to give you peace like you've never experienced before. So in these next few moments as we sing a couple songs and you reflect, speak to him. What is on your heart? 
And know that he comes to you like he came to the prodigal son. He runs to you. He embraces you. He says, my child. My creation. And when you're ready, do come forward. Take the bread and the cup. And join us all as we celebrate what Christ did on the cross. If you're a follower of Christ, that's, that's all that that's all that our church cares about. There's, you don't have to be a member. You don't have to do anything. It's, you just, if you follow Christ, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, you can join us at the table today. Parents, it's up to you if your kids are ready for that. And let's just worship together. Spend some time um, before God and take the bread and the cup together. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his model. We thank you that you're with us and that you are calling us to healing. I pray, Lord, as a result of this message, there would be more and more people that would be willing to acknowledge the weaknesses, the wounds, the sins in their life, and that they would experience tremendous healing by your power. And that the result of that would be more and more people that would see the fruit of the Spirit emerge. And that the result of that would be more and more people who would come into the kingdom and experience this tremendous love and peace and joy and salvation that we have experienced from our Heavenly Father, who is so good to us. Holy Spirit, come. May that be true. Lord, have your way in us today. Amen.